Welcome to episode 39 of History Does You. Today we'll be covering the Battle of Manila. I went an interview with James Scott. So we're kind of continuing our World War II trend. So I get it. There's always so many different topics and aspects of the war that you can cover. But the Battle of Manila was something that I didn't really know a ton about. I think probably one of the most horrific episodes of the entire Pacific War and the war in general. And I've read a ton about military history, about the war, all of that. And reading Mr. Scott's book, it was honestly a hard read. I found it actually pretty difficult to get through. Again, it was just, I think, really, truly horrific. And it was one in which in, you know, the Americans trying to take the city were involved in. Again, like the rape of Nanking, for example, which happened in 1937, I believe, that was exclusively Japanese kind of committing that atrocity on the Chinese, and the U.S. wasn't really involved in that. But by 1945, when this battle began um, in sort of February, the U.S. was heavily involved in that and trying to take the city. And what followed was really one of the most horrific episodes of the war, just in terms of the way the Japanese systemically went killing the civilian population. And again, it was really difficult for me to kind of read and kind of reconcile with. Again, I just think unlike the Western theater in Europe, the Pacific War was kind of just fought in terms of its atrocities and the brutality was on another level, in part because of the way the Japanese fought the war, which was that they would go down fighting, that they would not surrender, all those sorts of things. And so again, I think it's a tough topic to talk about, but I think it's one that's important to talk about and shed light on because these things happen and I don't think it does any service to anyone to mince words or beat around the bushes and just talk about that this happened and you sort of have to reconcile with. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. Again, just as a disclaimer, it's a bit of a tough topic. What happened was really horrific. But again, I think it's important to kind of cover these types of topics and kind of get the perspective of everyone that was involved. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. It's a great interview. And I hope you learned about the Battle of Manila. On today's episode, we welcome on James Scott. He's a former Neiman Fellow at Harvard and is the author of Rampage, which was named one of the best books of 2018 by the editors at Amazon, Kirkus, and Military Times, as well as being chosen as a finalist for the prestigious Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History by the New York Historical Society. His other work includes Target Tokyo, which was a 2016 Pulitzer Prize finalist in history. He also wrote The War Below and The Attack on the Liberty, which won the Rear Admiral Samuel Elliott Morrison Award. So welcome on. Thanks so much for having me. And to start off, what is your favorite subject of history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in the Battle of Manila? Got it. My area of interest really is World War II and specifically in the Pacific. And it actually goes back to my time right after college. I was an English teacher on the JET program. So I spent my first year after college teaching middle school English in Japanese public school system, which for me was just an eye-opening opportunity to live in Japan. This was in the 1990s. I visited places like Hiroshima and Tokyo, Kyoto. There were still a lot of World War II survivors, people who'd been civilians as well during, for example, the B-29 attacks. I'd always been interested in history, but that really opened my eyes specifically to the Japanese experience and to the American experience in World War II. I ended up working in journalism for a while as a newspaper reporter. I knew I wanted to write, and being a journalist is about the only thing you can do. To write for a living, have somebody pay you. I ended up covering the military as well, and so when the opportunity arose to sort of gravitate over to writing books, I kind of fell back on my natural interest, which was history and, of course, World War II in the Pacific. Great. 
And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered either writing Rampage or any of the other research you have done? Rampage, and for your listeners to know, it's a story of the 29-day fight to liberate Manila at the end of World War II. The Philippines, of course, had been a U.S. colony before the outbreak of World War II. And and the battle to retake Manila was the only urban fight of the Pacific War that involved U.S. troops. And it was an incredibly bloody battle. About 100,000 civilians were killed, over 600 blocks of the city were leveled. And it led to some of the worst atrocities. So I think for me, one of the biggest challenges in working on that project was really wading into the just how awful a lot of the material was. So much of it was available. You know, the U.S. very quickly after the battle realized that Manila was less of a battlefield and more of a crime scene. So we sent in teams of investigators to interview witnesses and take down statements. And so those records, you know, many of them dictated in bedsides and field hospitals, literally filled just bankers' boxes of records at the National Archives. And so going through all those thousands of pages and reading these brutal accounts was a pretty painful experience. I was lucky too in that when I was doing my research, I'd finish up a lot of my archival work. I went over and spent some time in the Philippines, interviewed survivors of the battle, walked to these atrocity sites. And so for me, though, I think sort of wrapping my head and research around such a large, grim topic was no doubt a challenge, So, but a very rewarding one in the end, I'll add. And to get into kind of the Battle of Manila, which we'll be talking about today, to kind of start, what was kind of the city of Manila like? Was it kind of this unique blend of kind of Western and Asian culture? I mean, kind of what was the city like kind of before the war? Absolutely. That's a great question. Yeah, it was called the Pearl of the Orient. I mean, it really was a jewel of a city. You know, the United States had captured the Philippines during the Spanish-American War. And very early on after that, we decided that Manila would be sort of the face of Americanism in Asia. And so we brought in Daniel Burnham, who was sort of a landmark city planner and architect. I mean, his career, he did the Flatiron Building in New York. He helped with the redo of the National Wall in Washington, Union Station in D.C. as well, which is you know, still the dominant transit hub there at Capitol Hill. And so he came over to the Philippines and sort of laid out a plan for how Manila and Baguio should develop. And it was a pretty amazing plan, one that actually mirrored in many ways Washington, lots of parks and these grand neoclassical structures and so forth. And of course, you know, Manila has this incredible natural beauty in that it has this huge bayfront that faces out towards sunset and Corregidor out in the distance. So it really had sort of this perfect blend of natural beauty, the tropics, along with this old Spanish churches, the ancient walled city of Intramuros, which you know, had dated back to the soon after the city's founding in the 1500s. So you had this amazing blend of old Spanish architecture, the new American plan. And then, of course, just thriving cultures, as you noted, you know, Malaysians, Chinese. It was really just this melting pot. It had developed the reputation of being sort of the Pearl of the Orient. And so it was home not only to thousands of U.S. service members, but of course, a lot of business executives from big companies, Del Monte, BF Goodrich, General Motors. You know, so they lived there with their families. They had swimming pools and golf courses, air-conditioned movie theaters, you know, all of these kind of luxuries that you might find at home, but for a fraction of the cost. And so it really was sort of a prized outpost for Americans serving overseas. And one thing that I think is interesting that there was a very bloody insurgency campaign when the U.S. first occupied the Philippines, and obviously that kind of died down. But with the onset of kind of World War II, did that kind of change the nature of the relationship between kind of the Philippines and the U.S.? Was there sort of kind of a change in the way that the Filipinos saw kind of the Americans? Did that really change anything? 
Certainly. And you bring up a really interesting and tragic story as well, which is Philippine insurrection, which was an incredibly bloody period and not a really positive reflection on the U.S. at that time. I mean, we waterboarded insurgents. We put Filipinos in concentration camps. It was a pretty dark period. Right after that, the U.S. did a 180 degree about face and brought in thousands of teachers, helped build these sewers helped inoculate against diseases and, of course, built cities and infrastructure. And so the relationship between the United States and the Filipinos changed for the better. And so by the time the World War II broke out, Filipinos were actually far more loyal to the Americans than the Japanese had realized. That said, the fall of the Americans was a big blow to the Filipinos. You know, Americans held off against the Japanese up until Matan fell in April, and then Corregidor fell finally in May. And it was a pretty big shock because, you know, here were the Americans with their vaunted military and whatnot being defeated in a matter of months. And so it was certainly a shock to the Filipinos. That said, that surprise, however, did not erode that loyalty that so many Filipinos felt to the Americans. And that would be reflected in the way that uh, Filipino guerrillas fought with American troops against the Japanese, fought themselves against the Japanese, of course, and did a lot of things. There was a lot of even efforts by everyday Filipinos to sort of undermine the Japanese occupation as well. And as you note, the Japanese would take the Philippines and kind of the surrounding areas in 1941, 1942. Was there initially an expectation from the Japanese that they would be greeted as kind of liberators? And then as they kind of realized that it wasn't, was their occupation of the area generally harsh? Yes, it was. I mean, the Japanese really came in and they sort of had this idea that they were here to free the Filipinos from the American, the Caucasian control. And they really expected that they would be greeted as fellow Asians as sort of a better occupying force. And so they were pretty stunned when that didn't happen. And what really develops then over the course of the next several years as the Japanese occupy is a growing tensions between the Filipino population and the Japanese military. And it takes a little while for the Philippine guerrillas to sort of build up their momentum and to sort of organize and whatnot. But you begin to see, you know, by 1943, 1944, very successful guerrilla attacks against the Japanese. And of course, this leads up to the United States' return. As part of that, people who were targeted, for example, were Philippine business leaders and politicians who collaborated with the Japanese and worked with them. I mean, they would uh, execute them. They would often cut off the ear of, of the individual. And that was a sign that they were being punished for being a collaborator, if you will. So that tension really built effectively to a powder keg that kind of erupts when the Battle of Manila occurs. And another point that I think is interesting that I wanted to ask was what generally happened to the people that were non-military personnel from the U.S. and also just people, business people from other countries that weren't necessarily at war with the U.S., were they considered prisoners of wars or did the Japanese kind of consider them as almost like detainees? Yeah, that's a great question. All the American troops, of course, were eventually captured and they were put in a prisoner of war camp. Many of them were part of the Bataan Death March. Some of them were later put on hell ships, which was the name given to these just atrocious cargo ships that ferried prisoners of war back to the Japanese mainland later in the war to help build shelters and mines and working factories. But there were thousands of American and allied civilians who, who worked for Ford Motor Company and BF Goodrich who were stuck when the war broke out and by the speed of the war and so couldn't get home. And so these thousands, and they, these were men, women, and children, were interned. And it was a really a, sort of a haste job. The largest internment camp in the Philippines was at Santo Tomas University, which is this old 
very stately university in Manila, right across the river there. But it was a day school. So it was not designed. It didn't have any capacity to board people overnight. And so very quickly, they had several thousand internees. I think at the high mark, it was over 4,000 internees there. And they had to build bunk beds. They had to build toilets. They had to learn how to grow their own food. I mean, they literally had to... The Japanese kind of sort of pulled back and left them on their own in a lot of ways. So they built their own functioning government, if you will, inside this camp. And it's really, I think, one of the most fascinating stories of the war in the Philippines is sort of the resilience of these civilians and how they built this functioning society and system essentially in prison. And so they had over 500 children there. So they built a school system there and they cobbled together all these books and made libraries. They had baseball leagues and boxing. I mean, you could take tennis lessons or golf lessons from one of the pros there. Carl Midens, who was the legendary Life Magazine photographer, was interned there and he did photography lessons. So it's really, and Santa Damas, I'll add too, you know, of course, it's still there today. There's still shrapnel on the doors there, and there's still actually a group of survivors. In fact, I've gone out to speak to their reunions for the last couple of years who were children at Santo Tomas. I think it's World War II in the Pacific, is that civilian internee experience. And then to kind of get into the Battle of Manila itself, obviously the Americans returned in early 1945, first to and then at Luzon. As American forces approached the city, was there generally an expectation that the Japanese would leave the city undefended? Yeah. And one thing I'd like to say too beforehand is that by the time the Americans return in January of 1945, conditions in Manila have gotten really awful for the American internees and also for the civilians because the Japanese during the several years of their occupation had so mismanaged the economy that the food supplies collapsed and that people really, starvation was running rampant. People were forced to eat pets. They were literally abandoning children to orphanages, even selling them. In the same conditions, of course, Santo Tomas, which had been this functioning internee community, really devolved to the point where three to four people were starving to death each day. And rats, for example, were selling for eight pesos each on the camp's black market. So I mean, you imagine how hungry you have to be to eat a rat. Imagine how hungry you have to be to actually buy a rat to eat. So by the time the Americans return, you're really, the Philippines, particularly in Manila, is experiencing this, they're on the verge of this humanitarian collapse. And so it's very vital that the Americans get there and liberate the city as quickly as they can. So of course, the Americans arrive and MacArthur was convinced that the Japanese would abandon Manila, just like he had done at the beginning of the war. Of course, he withdrew his forces to Bataan and Corregidor because Manila is a big city. You know, it doesn't have much of a strategic advantage outside of its waterfront, which was, of course, a deep water anchorage and you could put a lot of warships in there. But beyond that, it's just a city. And it's a city that has a lot of hungry civilians. And so he was really convinced that the Japanese would leave. And that was originally part of their plan. But later on, they reversed that. Instead of leaving, decided that they would convert Manila into a sort of create an urban bloodletting, much like Stalingrad. And so they began to fortify the buildings. They began to plant landmines. And, and a lot of creativity here. I mean, improvised explosive devices and things of that nature, really preparing a trap, if you will, for the incoming Americans. And early on, obviously, you've explained what was going on at the University of Santo Tomos, that MacArthur would send rescue mission. What kind of motivated him to kind of send these soldiers on what seemed kind of like a risky mission? Was it really kind of a humanitarian one? 
or did he want them to kind of scout the city? I mean, what sort of was going on? Yeah, they had actually, in route to Manila, they had liberated another camp. And so that was further out in the countryside. And the condition of the prisoners of war there were pretty awful. And so it gave them a pretty big window. And their intelligence, of course, that they were getting in from Filipino guerrillas was that conditions in Manila were pretty bad. And he was anxious to get there. I mean, he had thousands of Americans. There were two big camps in, in Manila at that time. You had over 3,000 people at Santo Tomas, and then a number of blocks away, you had a, roughly 1,000 at, at Billabit Prison. He wanted to get there and liberate those prisoners of war or those internees before anything could happen to them. So he had that big rush to want to get in there. And again, he thought the Japanese were going to pull out. So he thought that by the time he got there, he could just sort of swoop in and grab them and uh, mop up any small resistance that might be. And to get from the Japanese perspective, commander of Japanese forces in the city, General Yamashita, what was his motivation for converting the city, as you mentioned, to this kind of urban bloodbath? What was... Yeah, Yamashita was the general who was outside of Manila at the time, and he had a subordinate officer, Admiral Iwabuchi, who was inside the city. And yeah, you know, there's a lot of back and forth as to whether or not, like how much control Yamashita had over Iwabuchi or not and trying to order him out. But at the end of the day, Iwabuchi, he had a pretty bad military career up until that point. He'd been the skipper of a, of a ship during Guadalcanal that had the Americans destroyed. And rather than go down with a ship, he'd been rescued, which was a big disgrace in Japanese culture at that time. He spent much of the rest of the war sort of parked behind a desk until the deaths of so many more capable seafaring officers led to his career resurrection. And he was sent to the Philippines in charge of a really small garrison, if you will, there in Manila. And so when MacArthur was coming in, he decided that you know, largely on his own, that this was going to be his opportunity for redemption. And he was going to take very liberally the orders to try and slow down the Americans in any way possible and to inflict as much harm on them in any way possible. And he decided to turn the city against them. And as I was mentioned briefly earlier, I mean, the creativity that went into that, I mean, they went into these buildings that the Americans had built during the pre-war period. And these were the big concrete and steel reinforced, the city hall, the post office, the legislature, these were the buildings that were built to withstand typhoons and earthquakes. They dug wells in the basements of them and they stockpiled food. I mean, they were really preparing for a, a long siege. And their plan was to try to inflict as much damage on the Americans as possible. And how did kind of war planners from the U.S. Army go about kind of dividing the city and what units would kind of be involved in the battle? Yeah. What we decided to do essentially is because Manila is really... One side of it faces the waterfront. So we sent in the 37th Infantry and the cavalry to kind of come in from the north and also from the east. And we sent in the 11th Airborne to parachute in and then drive up from the south and sort of close the city's back door. So we were essentially going to sort of compress them into this tighter and tighter area sort of bound there by the waterfront. And that's exactly the plan we did. And that plan didn't really deviate, even though we did find pretty early on in the battle, we found a copy of Iwabuchi's battle plan for the city of Manila. And our analysts noted when they rushed to translate it that the Japanese were going to hold the city, do everything they could, but that they had no plan of escape, that they had essentially decided to die in place. And so that affected, of course, how we were going to prosecute this battle. So, I mean, a lot of times you would want to maybe leave a back door open so that your enemy could flee or whatnot. Japanese had no intention of doing that. And we knew that early on, that this was going to be a fight to the death. And so what the Americans then had to do was literally battle block by block building by building. And the Japanese had fortified about 50 intersections in downtown Manila. And what they would do is they would literally, they would put mines in them. They would sink railroad axles into the asphalt upright. Uh, they'd take oil drums filled with concrete and create obstacles and 
take truck bodies and turn them over on their sides and wire them together or other factory equipment. Anything to sort of slow down the Americans who are going to be pushing block by block. And so the infantry really realized that in a lot of cases, you couldn't go down the streets because of these fortifications. The Japanese also had machine guns there. They would have to go into the buildings on either side and they would have to blow out the walls of the buildings, sort of advance through the buildings in order to get to the back of the Japanese pillboxes to eliminate the soldiers there. So the same thing happened with the taller buildings. Japanese would drop Molotov cocktails from up higher windows and whatnot, and it would slow down the advance. The Americans would then have to use assault teams to go into these buildings, take down these rogue Japanese forces. So really, just going block by block became in and of itself a really difficult thing. It's important to remember that these were troops who weren't trained in urban combat. They weren't expecting to have to do this. I mean, these were guys who had stormed the beaches in New Guinea and whatnot. I mean, they were used to fighting on beaches and in jungles, and suddenly they're here they were having to fight in cities. And so they very quickly had to adapt. They created 12-person assault teams. They fell back on the flamethrower, which is a highly effective weapon in these tight conditions. And so it really was sort of learning on the fly, if you will. And early on, did kind of the battle over this steam-driven power plant, which was on Professor Island, did that kind of set the stage for kind of, or at least in the minds of the Americans, how brutal this coming battle was going to be? No doubt. And that was one of many that would play out throughout. I mean, it became, each of these became sort of like a small fortress. It wasn't just the power plant. It ended up having to be at the hospital. It ended up having to be the legislature. It had to be the finance building, the agricultural building. Each of these, and again, it goes back to sort of the Japanese planning, which we will take advantage of these concrete reinforced buildings and just make it very dangerous for the Americans. And of course it worked. In the end, it slowed, it took 29 days for the Americans to retake Manila. So it slowed us, slowed us down by a month, if you will. So it was a very effective strategy militarily. And generally, was there much fighting in kind of the outskirts of the city, or did the Japanese kind of favor this heavily confined fight in the interior of the city? Yeah, I mean, eventually there would be. I mean, in fact, the U.S. would battle the Japanese, you know, literally until the end of World War II, all over the islands. But at that time, I mean, the battle was largely, I mean, the focus of America's effort was on retaking that city. And it's important because, you know, Manila was the cultural as well as the political heart of the Philippines. And MacArthur wanted to be able to say, I have returned. And, you know, landing on the beaches of Leyte is not the same as sort of showing back up at the presidential palace of Manila and having, you know, the Philippine president, Sergio Osmania, with him and being able to turn over power. I mean, it's just far greater symbolism. And that's what MacArthur wanted. I mean, he was actually planning his liberation parade. It was going to go through the downtown Manila. It's going to be just like take, retaking Paris, if you will, but only in Asia. So that's why, I mean, so much of the focus for us was on getting Manila. And how did Filipino civilians that were caught up in the city who were kind of caught in between try to deal with this situation? That's one of the most tragic stories. I mean, the Filipino population, the brutality of this battle was born on a hundred civilians died for every one U.S. soldier. A lot of that comes down to just the Japanese barbarity, if you will. I mean, the Japanese knew that when the battle was over, I mean, the battle had begun that they were going to lose in all likelihood. And so they really took it out on the civilian population. They went systematically through some of Manila's nicer neighborhoods and set them on fire. They rounded up civilians and locked them into social clubs and dining halls and set them on fire. I mean, the brutality and the atrocities inflicted on the civilian population really it rivals what happened in Nanking earlier in the war. I think one of the worst stories that I encountered was a house on Singalong Street which the Filipinos had gone around the neighboring areas and rounded up a couple hundred of the men, and they blindfolded them and marched them into this home, took them up to the second floor, 
where they had cut a hole in the floor of the second floor. And they would force these blindfolded men to kneel over that hole and they would chop the head off. And then the head would fall down the hole into the first floor and they would push the body down. And they literally filled up the entire downstairs of this home with 200 dead. And of course, we investigated all that afterwards and eventually had to tally how many people had died there by counting skulls. And we determined it was 200 people. And so that was kind of the examples of just sort of the, the horror that, that happened to the civilian population there. And then you add on top of that artillery and shrapnel and things of that nature. So it really was a hellacious experience for the civilians. And as the battle kind of went on, did General MacArthur kind of refuse to allow the use of heavy weaponry? And if so, how did his subordinates kind of react to that decision? Yeah, he did because he wanted to protect the civilians. And originally, subordinates had asked for artillery and bombs to be, you know, dropped from airplanes. And, uh, and he barred it because he didn't want to have mass civilian casualties. When the Americans suffered heavy losses crossing the Pasig River and entering into central Manila, he relented and allowed artillery. And the U.S. fired, uh, I think it was about 42,000 artillery rounds in the course of that battle. So you really had, between American artillery and then the Japanese burnings of the cities and whatnot, the city kind of being torn apart from the inside and the out. And as the U.S. kind of fought their way deeper into the city and as time kind of passed on, did Japanese behavior just become more and more heinous? In fact, they wrote down orders on how best to kill civilians. I mean, to group them in numbers set them on fire to throw them in the rivers and whatnot. I mean, so it really, as the battle progressed, it was obvious that the Japanese were going to lose. I mean, they really took it out on the civilian population. And kind of in the final sort of week of the battle, you had this battle over kind of central Manila and what was kind of mm-hmm. called the walled city. Yeah. Did that fight effectively bring an end to the battle and kind of went, went on during that particular kind of fight? Yeah, and that's Intramuros is the old walled city in Manila. And it's a beautiful, fascinating place if you get a chance to visit. You know, it's about 160 acres. It, it was sort of the old Spanish heart of the city. You know, that for, it's where the Manila Cathedral is and a number of other very historic churches. And so Japanese had sealed that off and they were kind of planning that to be one of their last bastions of defense against the Americans. So on February 23rd, we knew we had to retake this area. And so it was filled, of course, with civilians as well as Japanese. And of course, it's all protected behind a huge wall. So we had to fire about 10,000 artillery rounds that morning over the course of an hour into the walls around it. And then assault troops went in. And it took about two days to finally kill all the Japanese in there and to to liberate Intramuros. But the Japanese, we realized, had actually already killed about 4,000 men, civilian men, in the city in the days leading up, in the walled city in the days leading up to that, so that they wouldn't turn on the Japanese because they knew that the Filipinos were more loyal to the Americans. And with the Americans so close, they would have to fight the Americans and potentially civilian males. And so they killed most of them. That was the last sort of main battle. There were a few spots. You had the agricultural building, the finance building, and the legislative building, which ringed the old walled city, where you had Japanese troops sort of hold up in each of those. And so it would take about another week for the United States to basically eliminate those threats as well. But each of those was sort of taken in its own individual battle, if you will. And in the aftermath of the battle, what was the state of the city generally? And was there ever an accurate count of the casualties? Yeah, it was um, almost totally destroyed. I mean, at least the majority of this sort of central downtown districts. About, I think it was over 600 city blocks were leveled, including about 11,000 buildings, schools, historic churches, whole neighborhoods, uh, government buildings, things of that nature. 
were lost. And it also, it's important to note too, you know, it's not just the buildings that get lost. It's also all the cultural artifacts. I mean, when you destroy a museum, you lose the artwork, you lose the sculptures, you lose the paintings. When you destroy a library, you lose the original manuscripts. When you destroy a hospital, you lose all the patient data and things like that. So really, not only did it destroy the city, it also wiped out so much of Manila's cultural heritage. And of course, in addition to that, all the human capital that was killed. You had your inventors, your teachers, your engineers, your doctors, your moms, your dads, all that sort of, I mean, it just, it had, it tore this huge generational wound into the family structure of so many in the Philippines. About 100,000 people died. That's the estimates that the Philippine government holds on to. A precise counting is almost impossible. Some people tell you it's a little under that. Some people tell you it's over that. People had evacuated the city beforehand, so maybe they were lost count of. Whole families were wiped out, so there's nobody there to report if they were lived or survived. So it's a sort of tallying who exactly lived and died, and sort of that post-war chaos was, of course, a huge challenge. That's the number that the Filipino government has on its website. And were Japanese soldiers or commanders that participate in the various kind of massacres ever held accountable in the aftermath of the war? Yeah, not many of them survived. There were about 17,000 Japanese troops. Only a few hundred of them survived. And most of those who survived were men who'd been left on the battlefield, who their superior officers thought that they were so badly wounded they wouldn't survive and they weren't going to waste the ammunition killing them. A couple commanders did survive, were executed and tried. The largest of those was um, General Yamashita, who was the commander of the army for all the Philippines. And he actually was not in Manila during the battle. He was up in Baguio, which is the summertime capital. He was put on trial in what was the first war crimes trial in all of Asia. And it was a huge public event. It was held in the old high commissioners, the U.S. high commissioners office there in downtown Manila. It's actually the U.S. embassy today. And the ballroom that served as the courtroom is still there. In fact, if you go to Manila, you can go in there and visit. It looks very much like it did 75 years ago. So it was a huge trial covered gavel to gavel. 16,000 spectators turned out over the course of a month to watch the trial. I think it was 32 days. And in the end, Yamashita was found guilty, and he was hanged in February of 1946, stripped of all his medals and even his officer's uniform. And my final question is overall, what do you think the legacy of the battle is for pretty much all the countries involved, the U.S., the Japanese, and the Philippines? Yeah, you know, it's one of those, I mean, the Battle of Manila is still a big deal in the Philippines. When Rampage came out, I did a book tour, I did 11 lectures around Manila. Battle of Manila survivors would show up. One woman brought me her diary. Another one brought me poetry she wrote. Another person showed me the shrapnel scars. A gentleman who's a friend of mine whose family had come up during the Battle of Manila said, you know, every Sunday at lunch, there's always a reference to the battle. Because it tore such a big hole in families, you had infants and children killed. You had sort of mid-level generation parents age killed. You had grandparents killed. So it really, it, the carnage was spread across multiple generations. And so it still echoes, I think, even today. That's probably one of the biggest legacies. I mean, in fact, I've done a lot of webinars since in just the last few months, just with folks in the Philippines. So there's still a lot of interest. And of course, that's the big tragedy of it. Like I said earlier, it's, this is a battle born almost entirely on the backs of the civilian population. Such a high civilian price was paid to liberate Manila. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with James Scott. Just from my perspective, I think the only way to describe the Battle of Manila is tragedy, just in terms of the way that the city was destroyed and the way the population was systemically kind of killed. And as Mr. Scott mentioned, that kind of generational gap that emerged as a result of this. And 
From an American perspective, I think, again, our relationship with the Philippines is an interesting relationship just given that in the early 20th century, the U.S. was starting to pursue this kind of more imperialistic foreign policy, you know, taking the Philippines and then what followed with the insurrection, which resulted in some very brutal fighting between the Americans and the Filipinos and that relationship kind of changing over the next few decades leading into the war where we were allies and then kind of U.S. losing the Philippines and then the occupation that followed and then the Battle of Manila, which was kind of the climax of the liberation of the Philippines, was very brutal. I mean, again, it's a difficult topic to cover, but I think, in my opinion, it would be a disservice not to cover a topic of this nature because, again, history is not always good, unfortunately, and very terrible and brutal things happen. And I think, at least with Manila, hopefully people can look at that and say, hopefully that will never happen again. That the way we treat one another. When I was reading the book, just some of the things that happened, I didn't feel like describing because it was that horrific. But again, I encourage you to read the book because I think it explores the army perspective of soldiers who were fighting in this urban environment from the Filipino perspective who were caught in between just trying to survive. And then the Japanese perspective, which was they were losing the war and they did not want to lose their honor in their eyes. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I think it's a tough topic to cover, but it's an important event to shed light on. So yeah, hope you enjoyed it. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end. And thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.